Good morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might take distractions from us this morning, that we might hear your word. We pray that we might not only hear it, but understanding it, understand it, and not only understand it, but believe it. And we pray that believing it, we might live as your faithful people. And we ask it of you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. To pray as Jesus bids us pray in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, is to pray something huge. It's to pray on the largest scale imaginable. It is to pray that the purposes of God might find their fulfilment, all opposition overcome, judgment delivered, and those who are welcomed into the fullness of his rule and care his people. It is to recognise that the very best for each of us resides at this point when God's reign, his sovereign power and majesty are most fully on display. It's to acknowledge we cannot bring it about. Only God himself can. Only he can cause his kingdom to come. And it is to face the fact that the kingdom in all its fullness is not here yet. Our little kingdoms are not his kingdom. We are still awaiting the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the things that uh, troubles me most about the current state of so many churches, in the Western world at least, is their lack of a kingdom vision. It seems to me that what we might call a parochial vision has taken over from a kingdom vision as expressed in the Lord's Prayer, the ministry of Jesus and his apostles and the many churches in Sydney not so long ago. Looking after ourselves, protecting the interests of our ministries, growing them and our local church seem to have skewered our commitment to God's worldwide kingdom. And that might be understandable in one sense when many feel under pressure. The tendency under those circumstances is almost always to focus inward, to concentrate on strengthening the centre and batten down the hatches to ride out the storm. But it is troubling just the same. I remember not so many years ago now talking to a pastor who explained how important it was for him and his church to send out their gifted, gospel-minded people to serve the wider cause of God's kingdom. 
I could have, I could have persuaded X, Y and Z to stay in our fellowship and help us build something big and impressive here, he said. But those men and women will have a huge impact as they serve Christ and his gospel elsewhere. And after all, it's Christ's kingdom that we want to see grow, not our own. And the reality is, as they leave, the Lord keeps raising up others. In contrast today, I hear pastors say, we can't afford to let them go, not yet. I need them here. We need them here. We need to protect and grow our ministries first. That's what I mean by a parochial vision rather than a kingdom vision. I know of congregations that used to pray regularly, give regularly and send regularly for worldwide cross-cultural mission who just don't seem to do that anymore. Their own needs are much more pressing. And the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come, is a monumental challenge to that way of thinking. So what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? What are we actually asking God to do? Well, before we answer that question, we need to remind ourselves how important the idea of God's kingdom is throughout the entire Bible, in the Old Testament and the New. And so I want to look briefly with you at the kingdom promised, the kingdom proclaimed, the kingdom prayed for, and the kingdom provided. So first of all, the kingdom promised. Throughout the Psalms, God is presented as the great king. Hear the words of the sons of Korah in Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Or the words of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Or a few psalms later in Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Well, I don't know how much longer uh, Australia will survive as a monarchy. Um, it may be that Elizabeth II is the last ruler of Australia. Maybe not, but I suspect it's likely. The monarchy is considered by many to be a relic of times past, not just because our monarch lives on the other side of the world and is the head of state of another country, but because monarchs, and especially absolute monarchs, are considered oppressive figures. They curtail the rights and freedoms of ordinary people. And 
While there is little prospect of that kind of oppression at the hands of a constitutional monarch, there's still enough evidence in our world of despotic rule, kings and princes who trample all over the people they're supposed to serve. And yet you know that the Old Testament picture of God as king is unremittingly positive. He is a great and holy king. His rule is a rule of righteousness and justice. It's something to get excited about. It's a cause for joy. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. If, as one writer put it, God's kingdom is the earthly imposition of his character, then we know that character to be good and pure and generous and gracious. God's kingdom is a good thing because God's good. Of course, as the Old Testament unfolds, the reign and rule of God is tied to the reign and rule of his chosen servant, most notably King David. Through Nathan the prophet, God told David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And he also went on to say, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David is the great king of the Old Testament, but his rule is only ever a pale expression of God's rule. His reign is not entirely a reign of righteousness and justice, is it? Or mercy and compassion. It is tainted and spoiled by David's own selfishness and sinfulness, and those who follow him on the throne of Israel are just the same. Even at its best, the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah falls short of the kingdom of God. And so those who look for the kingdom that will be established forever turn their eyes towards the future. Ezekiel, the prophet of the exile, that great judgment on the king and kingdom which had failed to live up to the promise, wrote in just those terms in Ezekiel 37. I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. You see, the promise of the kingdom survived the exile. The promise of the great king descended from David, and all that David was not now looked to the future. And that hope and that promise are an important part of the background to Jesus' call to pray your kingdom come. The day for which every faithful Israelite was waiting was the day when God's rule and God's reign, when his kingdom and his king were at last established for all to see. That was the great Old Testament hope. That is what gripped the imagination and shaped the vision of the faithful reader of the Old Testament. And let me ask you, does it grip yours? Does it shape yours? Now, of course, something wonderful has happened in between the Old Testament and us. So, secondly, the kingdom preached. 
The arrival of John the Baptist on the scene in Matthew 3 is extraordinary against that background we've just painted. Not only did he make an extraordinary sight, you know, up to his waist in the Jordan River, clothed like the prophet Elijah, breaking the silence from God, which had been deafening for around 400 years since the last of the Old Testament prophets fell asleep. Not only that, his message was extraordinary. In those days, Matthew writes, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preparing the way for the one to come after him. But he does that by announcing the imminent arrival of the kingdom and the preparation it demands. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very thing that every faithful Jew was waiting for was just around the corner. And now is the time to get ready. You see, John's ministry is a landmark event. His preaching was meant to interrupt the small-time dreams and visions of those who heard him. Something beyond just you, something bigger than just us is coming and you need to get ready. And then a chapter later, after his baptism and testing in the wilderness, Jesus began his public ministry. From that time, Matthew records, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message. The preaching of Jesus was the preaching of the kingdom. God's rule, God's reign had drawn near because God's king had come. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is front and centre all through Matthew's gospel. The life and ministry of Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament promise. The king has come. The kingdom has drawn near. And the whole of Jesus' ministry is to be understood in that frame. It reminds me of one of my favourite Christmas cards, back when Christmas cards were a lot more popular than they are now. Um, it beautifully reflected that framing of Jesus' entire ministry by this identification of the king and announcement of the kingdom. Perhaps you may have seen it. I'll try to get the details right. I'm sure someone can correct me later. The card had a number of musical staves, over which were printed the words, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And then between the staves were the words near, from near the end of John's gospel, So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. You see, from the announcement of the angels at his birth to his coronation with a wreath of thorns, to his glorious ascension to sit on the throne of heaven, Jesus' ministry was all about establishing the long-promised kingdom of God. No surprise then that uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus should keep talking about the kingdom. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom he spoke about, the kingdom he declared was at hand, is a kingdom of righteousness, real righteousness. Not the ostentatious sham righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, but the real thing. It's a kingdom where God's character not only matters, but it's stamped over the whole thing. Where God is king is not only a slogan, but a reality in the lives of his people. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus tells his disciples in the second half of Matthew 6. And all these things, the things that distract us, the necessities of life, all these things will be added to you. Seek his righteousness. Seek his kingdom. It's drawn near. Drawn near because Jesus the King has come. But it's still something to seek. Still something to enter. And it is uh, this kingdom, the good news of this kingdom, drawn near in the person of Jesus, that is not only at the centre of Jesus' message, but is the message he gives to his disciples to take to the ends of the earth. It's both here now, the king has been identified, he has triumphed, the authority is his, and yet it's still to come. So get ready. It's real but hidden now. And yet the day is coming when it will be on full display and getting ready for that day is the most important thing anyone can do. The gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said in Matthew 24, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And on the other side of the resurrection... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king. He is the one with all authority, with the right to rule and the power to rule. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. No wonder Jesus urges his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come. So thirdly, the kingdom prayed for. It's our heavenly father, the, the one whose name we long to see hallowed, whose character we long to see recognised and honoured and delighted in. It's our heavenly father who we ask to establish his kingdom. Your kingdom come. In the end, only God can bring in his kingdom. The kingdom of God is not something that we can accomplish it's something that we seek, it's something that we prepare for, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it's not something we can accomplish. This petition takes us beyond what we can do to what only God can do. And so it's not something that we should confuse with our kingdom, with our ministry, with our accomplishments. We pray your kingdom come. I suspect it's only when we're uncomfortable with our kingdoms that we will pray your kingdom come and mean what Jesus meant by those words. We can so easily justify our plan and program and institution as an instrument that God uses to bring about his kingdom and the danger is that we'll slip into identifying the two. But it's God's agenda God's kingdom, his rule and authority, his big picture plan that concerns the person who prays these words. Let all the other kingdoms fall away, even the ones I'm deeply invested in, and let God's kingdom come. God's kingdom come. The kingdom long promised, the kingdom only dreamt of by David and Solomon and the faithful Old Testament believers of Israel. 
the kingdom we catch a glimpse of in the powerful and compassionate ministry of Jesus, the kingdom that will leave you speechless on the last day. As one contemporary Christian leader puts it, this is not a generic prayer. It only makes sense in the light of the gospel. It is God who will do it on the large scale at the end and it is God who does it in the hearts of those who are his now in preparation for the end. For the kingdom is still coming, but it's already here in our midst because the king has already staked his claim in our world. He's claiming his people. The prayer, your kingdom come, is a prayer for that day when all things will be brought to their conclusion, when God's glory and rule and authority will be seen in all its fullness, but it's also a prayer for the spread of God's kingdom purpose now. It is the prayer that God's saving royal rule will be seen now as people bow in submission to him in anticipation of that great day to come. And it is at the same time the prayer that God would hasten that day when we together with the whole creation will see our Lord seated upon his throne. For the coming kingdom ultimately awaits the return of the king which takes us finally back to the verses from Revelation 11 with which we began and the kingdom provided. I know the heading's a little lame, but you know it's a P that hopefully would be memorable. The kingdom provided. The coming of God's kingdom will see the humbling of the kingdoms of this world. There is one king and one kingdom that counts. That kingdom is bigger than this college. That kingdom is bigger than any institution or program or strategy that you can come up with. God was about establishing his kingdom long before any of these existed and he will continue long after each of these dissolves into the dust. Elsewhere in Revelation, we're reminded that God's great goal is to have a myriad of people from every tribe and language and people and nation gathered around the throne of God and of the Lamb. His kingdom establishes justice, real justice, not the sort of petty counterfeit that we get satisfied with. His kingdom sees judgment delivered and salvation affected. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, the scale of what is coming is truly mind-blowing. It causes the elders to fall on their faces and worship God. It is the wondrous announcement that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. God, you see, doesn't deal in half measures. When he brings his kingdom in, he really brings his kingdom in. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, and his people will rejoice, and those who have opposed him will be faced with the magnitude of their folly. It is, of course, always and forever anchored in the cross of Christ. It was there that God's king was crowned, and it was there he began to rule. And we remember this morning in this meal those great events which brought God's kingdom into this world in such a powerful way 
that the evil one was thrown down. And it is around the throne of the Lamb that we will rejoice on the day when God's kingdom comes. Friends, we need desperately the huge vision which this part of the Lord's Prayer expresses. We need to be broken free of our petty little visions, our parochial visions, our preoccupations with what we do and what we can accomplish. And we need to see the big picture. And wonderfully, Jesus' generous provision of this prayer as a model for our praying is a way of helping us to do just that. We are encouraged so very often to generate our own vision and to be preoccupied with doing it in all the power that we can realise. But praying your kingdom come is a remedy to that. For these words are deeply subversive in the end. They turn our attention to something bigger, far, far bigger. Pray these words. Understand what God's kingdom is. And you cannot be satisfied with a small parochial vision, no matter how good, godly and biblical that vision is. So God speed the day. Let God's kingdom come.